This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. First off, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's been a minute. Um, we've just been a little more scattershot than I would have liked the last couple weeks um, due to a lot of stuff with vet rep, um, which I won't get into now. All good stuff, but just, you know, busy. Um, but what's nice is I had had this date on the calendar for a while to have this interview with Michael Cook that you're about to hear. Um, I think we'd been on the calendar for like two months or something like that. Cause Michael and I have been talking, um, you know, Instagramming, whatever DMing and we'd set aside this date. So Michael has written a book, Life and Death at Abbey Gate, which is, I, I think it's fair to say, a crucial, pivotal piece of literature in the annals of our story in Afghanistan. Um, as you can tell from the title, obviously it does involve the events at Abbey Gate at HKIA during the Afghan withdrawal, but it's also Michael's personal story. Um, and his efforts in trying to help people get out, um, Afghan friends of his get out of the country. And Michael, unlike many of us that dove into this, um, Michael stayed with the Afghanistan problem set, even up until and including now, um, as you'll hear him talk about in the episode. So it was a pleasure to talk with somebody that is so plugged in to what's going on in Afghanistan, so invested in the history of the country. Um, because whether or not you you know, approved of the war in Afghanistan, whether or not you supported the withdrawal or didn't, um, no matter what the politics or the opinions are about Afghanistan, it's certainly a significant part of our history, and Michael is well-positioned to add to it. Um, the legwork he did to actually go and interview Marines who are at Abbey Gate talk to them, get their words on the page is a major part of the book. 
And he did that, to be fair, not just with the Marines that were there, but also with folks that were involved in the digital Dunkirk operation to evacuate Afghan allies from the country. So there's a lot of well-researched backstory that Michael did. And um, it's a really good piece of work. It really, it's, it's incredibly important to have somebody, um, you know, unspool major um, events like this. Um, and again, there is autobiographical parts of it, but um, which are fascinating and, and, you know, even thrilling or disappointing or, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, ennobling, but also um, the laying out the facts in an entertaining, straightforward way so you, everyone can understand the problem set that we were dealing with in the Afghan withdrawal and in the second and third order effects of that is crucial. Um, Michael was an Army Reserve engineer, an enlisted soldier, um, as he mentions in the book, but I'll just tee that up for you here so you know where he's coming from with his perspective. And um, as is a common refrain throughout his book, he's like, you know, I didn't have the clearance to be having these conversations and to be doing the kind of work he was doing. But what's, um, I mean, obviously, it worked out really well for him, um, which is a testament to his own, you know, courage and fortitude and stamina to be able to do what he did. But beyond that, it also makes him a very good writer to capture the whole digital Dunkirk effort because um, he has enough insider knowledge and enough outsider perspective to capture events well. Sometimes when you're too close to things, too knowledgeable, um, you know, too much by knowledgeable, I mean too much of a subject matter expert. You're hemmed in by your own biases, your own preconceptions. And Michael, it, at least to my mind, as I was reading what he put down, um, had a fresh enough take that he was able to see a lot of things clearly and articulate them clearly and forthrightly. And it just makes it an incredibly valuable um, piece of literature. So. I am not at my most articulate, <laughs> either now or in the interview. Um, I'm, I'm at the very tail end of a three-day water cleanse, and I risked interviewing Michael in that state. Um, so bear, bear, bear with me. I realize in retrospect, I was probably a little more scattershot than I otherwise would have been um, in my questions, and I thoughts kind of enter and skip out of my brain faster than I want right now. Um, so thanks for bearing with me on that. Uh, but Michael more than makes up for it with, uh, what he has to say. So, um, I'm assuming my elliptical questioning won't bother you too much. Okay. Without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Michael Cook's profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. No, I take that back. I'm not. <laughs> and let me tell you why. Love the book. The book, and by love, what I mean is it's incredibly necessary. It's an incredibly necessary book that you've written. And we'll talk about you and all the rest of it, but I want to start with just talking about the book. Um, but I'm not looking forward to it for the simple reason that 
it, dude, that was such a fucked up time for all of us that were involved with stuff in the Afghan withdrawal. I got to tears at the end. I think just, it was certainly, I want to credit your writing and the stories that you told, but I had a lot of mixed emotions going through it. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to walk you through some of my mixed emotions. Cause I think you'll appreciate it. Um, it's, I think the kind of narcissism of small differences that only people that worked on evacuation efforts could appreciate, but this is a tough subject. And you're one of the few people that's had the testicular fortitude to actually talk about it and write about it and deal with it and stay laser focused on it. So thank you for doing that first off. No, I appreciate you saying that. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the media has moved on, um, a couple times now. I mean, we, we moved to Ukraine and now that's old news. Um, so, you know, if we don't talk about it, then nobody will. So it's, it's really our duty, um, to keep this conversation going. Yeah, a hundred percent. Let me first start with you. How do you feel with the book coming out? Do you feel like a burden's been lifted or do you still feel like every day there's a little bit of a lift to keep the pressure and the focus on Afghanistan? Yeah. I mean, I'm, st I'm still mad, right? Um, I'm still very disappointed uh, with our government. You know, I'm extremely proud to share the uniform as of all the uh, Marines and um, airmen and soldiers that were at Abbey Gate and at HKIA. I think that they did the best they could. They were set up for failure. Uh, but, you know, just disappointed in our, in our government, disappointed in their actions and not living up to the promises they made um, to our uh, Afghan allies. So disappointed in that sense, but, you know, excited that, you know, it's time time for the book to come out, excited to be able to share the stories of some um, untold heroes that served at Abbey Gate and their names haven't come out just yet. So uh, just a pleasure to be able to, to bring uh, those people to the world and share their stories. What do you hope the book does? I hope that people read it and just, you know, I guess one is just learn a little bit about what happened because a lot of people don't even know, you know, um, for us that were, you know, for people that served in Afghanistan, for people that you know, worked on the evacuation, obviously we know what happened, but for the most part, the American people have no idea, you know, like a lot of my even good friends today still have no idea what happened. So, um, and, and that's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the, the, the war was never on their doorstep. It was always, you know, in a distant land. So it's not surprising and there's nothing wrong with them not knowing, but I hope that people can, you know, read the book and, and learn what happened um, and learn that we betrayed our allies, you know, um, because it's so important that we keep talking about that. So it never happens again. You know, we made promises to these people that fought with us for 20 years. They bled with us. They served so shoulder to shoulder with us. You know, we only had to go over there for a year each, right? On deployment, they had to stay there and live there um, and live with the enemy. So um to to make promises to them um and not not stand up to them um is difficult to live with yeah it is i wonder if those if two of the issues you brought up aren't interrelated though which is people not tracking the afghanistan problem set fully and our government's responsibility and their relative ease in shirking our moral obligation to our allies those two things seem to have a relationship yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, it really feels like the government wants us to forget about it. 
Sure. Um, it, it feels like they're not putting any emphasis on, on really trying to fix the problem. I mean, the Afghan Adjustment Act, for example, has been stalled for I don't even know how long at this point, but um, that's an act that would you know create a pathway to citizenship for our allies, and it's you know just just sitting. Um, so that's frustrating as well. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit because um, I have questions about that act as well. Um, your podcast that you do now, staying focused on Afghanistan. How much new information are you finding? How much? How much content is there? I mean, to my and again, I really pulled hard out of that loop. But my sense is there's there's not a lot to keep talking about except revisiting the past. Am I wrong? <laughs> No, I mean, it, it's still going on today, the, the fight. I mean, there's a bunch of groups that are popping up um, to fight the Taliban. You know, one that I've interacted with is the National Resistance Front, well, the, um, Nerf, the NRF, yeah, yeah, sure. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. led by Commander Massoud. Um, you know, I, I had the, the privilege to go spend a few days with, um, with the NRF and Massoud in, in Vienna, Austria over the summer and really, you know, got to know them and what they're about. Um, so they're one group that are, that's still fighting. Um, I think there's a couple other that are popping up. I think General Sammy Sadat is yes. leading a, um, a resistance. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of, you know, updates still coming out of Afghanistan. So there's so there's a lot of content. Let, let me clarify what I meant by that. You're, you're 100. Of course, Afghanistan is a cauldron of interesting things happening. What I meant more was on the American side of the ledger. So as far mm -hmm. as any clarification, rectification resolution to our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Is there any updates on that front or getting people out that we wanted to get out? Because to my knowledge, everything's stalled, dead in the water. There will never be any major resolution to any of that. Am I wrong? Uh, you're not completely wrong. There is a little bit of movement. Um, we just got a, another family here last week, actually, um, really? that I was associated with. So it's 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 really the NG, the NGOs that are still working really hard. Um, a lot of these NGOs that that formed up at the beginning of the evacuation have now combined into larger organizations and are really pushing the government to um, expedite certain names and, and visas. Um, so they're the ones that are really pushing the ball forward for the government. But yeah, there there is still um, an evacuation operation ongoing. Okay, um, I, I yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Um, let me kind of tell you where I'm coming from with this. I, I want to ask you a bunch of tough questions about everything you write about. Mostly, um, and I want to stipulate this up front, no disrespect to any Afghans that we're talking about or any Afghan efforts or Afghan military or anything that comes up. Um, but I feel like you've done a ton of research and have, a, and have now invested so much time and effort in this you're probably a really good and maybe even the perfect clearinghouse to get some clarity and some answers on where some things went wrong and what things can be fixed going forward first let's just lay the groundwork for the book that you wrote so people understand where you're coming from how long did you actually end up working on the evacuation efforts and because it seems you obviously highlight two major and incredible instances Fortunately, both successful, but it seems like you may have kept working long past that as yeah. well. Yeah, correct. So <clears throat> the first two families that we worked on, um, the first one was Abdul and Mohammed, who are my friends from my deployment to Afghanistan. That one, you know, that's the majority of the book because uh, I was closest with them. That one really only took, you know, a week. 
um, of just like a week sprint, no sleep, and just you know working through the digital Dunkirk network of people to try to get them out. Then the next family, the Pyman family um, that we worked with Senator Blumenthal on, that one took quite a while, probably 45 days. Um, it was only supposed to be a, a few day operation, really. We we're just going to get them up to Mazar Sharif. Um, so they had to sneak past about 14 Taliban checkpoints to get up there. Uh, we had to create fake visas for them to get past Taliban TSA. Um, they were supposed to fly out right away. But unfortunately, due to a lot of issues with the State Department and negotiations with the Taliban, um, they had to stay in safe houses for roughly 30, 35 days um, bouncing around. So that one was a little longer. But yeah, I mean, we're over two years from that now. And, you know, I'm still getting requests every single day from Afghans. I get uh, Instagram messages. I get text messages. I get emails. Um, my phone number got leaked during the um, evacuation. And um uh, by a news organization that, you know, I think they were trying to do the right thing, but, um, you know, they, and they took it down, but it went, it was up for quite a while. So a lot of people got my phone number and it spread pretty rapidly. Um, so yeah, I still get messages every day. Um, so luckily we've been able to get a few more families out since then. Um, but just, you know, the, the numbers are staggering of these SIV applicants. I mean, there's over a hundred thousand, I believe that are still stuck in Afghanistan and the majority of them are going to end up getting left behind for good. So let me ask the first tough question. How do we vet at this point, two years out, how do you vet any of these folks? Yeah, well, I think the good thing is, you know, we're not flying these people straight to the United States from Afghanistan, right? So these people are coming to the airport, they're getting on a flight and they're going to a lily pad site um, like Abu Dhabi or, or somewhere. Um, and then you can fully vet them there. So I think what a lot of people are scared of is just like you said, I mean, we're, we're they think that people are just coming straight to the United States. We have no idea who these people are. That's not true. We're, they're going to lily pad sites. They're getting fully vetted um, by the State Department, uh, making sure that, that they're clear and no threat to the United States. Okay, let me let me back up a little bit. Um, you know, it's funny. I should say you and I were at Moorhead at the same time. I don't no know way. That. Yeah. No way. Um, so, uh, and this was uh, this was very much my concern. Uh, force protections. It's kind of my thing. Um, so going into the vetting process, and, and obviously it was some that directly contributed to helping out with pineapple um, when everything went down. I got reports, again, same as you, on fucking signal, nothing boots on ground. But I got reports that there were, that a large majority of the folks that were getting evac'd early on were Urdu speakers because they were letting in people that were closest to the gates but that state didn't have enough vetting apparatus set up. So a lot of the numbers that we saw, and this is, again, I'm, I'm not claiming this. I'm saying this is what I've heard, um, and I want to run this by you, but that a lot of the numbers that we saw were folks that were taken out of convenience over folks that were vetted until the framework got in place, as you detail with 2-1 and some of the other folks that got in place, and then we were able to properly vet. The reason why... And I'll pass this to you for reaction, comment, and refutation as necessary. But the reason I that struck me as possible was because we had Afghans on the tarmac at HKIA, obviously falling off the planes. Clearly, people that were not vetted and organized and under the control um, of the security forces at HKIA at the time. So to me, that seemed right that probably early on there was a mad rush and we were just letting on a lot of unvetted people in a way that we've now been able to rectify because we've gained control over the situation 
Am I right in that? Or is there something I'm missing in that assumption? No doubt. It, it was absolutely a shit show at the beginning and probably through the whole evacuation, it was a shit show. And are there people that are probably here that, that shouldn't have gotten here? Probably. I think it's a very small number, but I'm sure there is. Um, because, you know, at the beginning, the state department was just very unclear, um, to the boots on the ground as to who was accepted and, and the, um, accept, acceptance documentation was constantly changing. So at one point, one document was good. The next point it wasn't, and then it was back to being good again. So these, you know, these young Marines are having to turn people away, um, possibly to their deaths for a document that 10 minutes later was being accepted. Right. So just no clarity from the, from the state department, every Marine that I interviewed that served at Abbey gate pretty much had the same story was the state department. We never even saw them at Abbey gate. They were working normal business hours. So they're working nine to five shutting down operations at night while these Marines still had to stand post and, and guard the, and guard the airport. Um, and just the lack of clarity. So they, Every Marine that I talked to just has a, a, a huge disdain for the State Department and the way that they handled the evacuation. Yeah, it's. I think it's worth saying, and I think you you show this through the diligence of all the stuff you lay out, all the details that you lay out in the book. There's no bad guy in this except the initial planning phases, which essentially were non-existent. And the, the biggest culprit I can see based off what you wrote was State based off of the Afghanistan report that's where DOD laid out, Hey, these were the plans we were working on and DOS had basically no response and they were not, you know, meeting us halfway on this. Has that changed or is that still the case in your view? No, definitely still the case. I mean, the, the, the lack of planning from the state department, the lack of execution um, was the, was the huge, the big issue. I mean, the Marines, uh, the airmen, the soldiers that were on the ground, you know, did that gave everything that they had. Um, and got put in some horrible situations. Um, but the lack of execution 100% came from State Department. One of the, um, if not culprits, just one of the one of the level-setting charges that you, <laughs> you make in the book that I think speaks to why people are disinterested in Afghanistan and in the withdrawal now is when you talk about, uh, you're talking about numbers of SIVs, and then you talk about, you know, President Biden got five draft deferments, and if we're going to talk about numbers, and that's one more than the four deferments President Trump got. Right. That because there is bipartisan jackassery and negligence in these, and not even negligence, I mean, willful, I mean, Trump entering the Doha peace talks and then Biden doubling down on those, because both parties or both presidents have, have blame in this, there seems like there would be a distinct lack of interest in you know doing a full accounting of all the states right yeah while we're on that subject just taking a 30,000 foot view of afghanistan of the withdrawal how do you feel how did you feel when ukraine popped off and people and this is me projecting a little bit so you can refute this you don't have to sign on to this but for me it was jarring the amount of flags that i saw for Ukraine from people that ostensibly like human rights, like America being a good guy, backing the good guy. And it wasn't just that there had been no Afghan flags during withdrawal. There hadn't been Afghan flags flown for 20 years in the United States for our Afghan allies. Did that 
obviously it was a it was a butthurt issue with me. Did that ever cross your mind? Did it piss you off at all? What was your take on it? Yeah, and that juxtaposition between Ukraine and Afghanistan, the way those have received different coverage in the American pop culture mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> of course, it, it bothered me. And uh, as soon as you open your mouth, I knew exactly where you're going to go with this. And yeah, I mean, it's frustrating. Um, the, you know, the other part of that is just how easy it was for Ukrainians to get visas to come to the United States was 10 times easier than an Afghan Um and you hate to say it's because of the color of their skin, but it's you know very likely that that is the truth. Um, that the Ukrainians maybe seem a lot more like us, so it's easier to relate with them than Afghans. Um, and I think it comes down to just media coverage more than anything. Um, you know, when the when the media is not covering Afghanistan, people aren't thinking about it. So um, when the you know the media really shifted to Ukraine and was just constantly covering Russia and Ukraine, so I think you know America sympathizes with that a lot more than. Uh, Afghanistan. There seems like there's a lot of um, places where that kind of friction that we see inside the United States can rub. One of them was even inside the military community. The difference between trying to get interpreters out and trying to get our allies out. That was one thing. And this is where for me it was difficult. First, let me stipulate fucking congratulations getting the people out that you have. That's incredible. And it's just such an accomplishment. Trying to think how personal I want to get on this. I worked for two months on that. I worked with 11 families. We got nobody out. Mm -hmm. These were guys that I'd, Afghan commandos that I'd worked with. Um, And essentially, um, I paid a very heavy price personally for it. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. For me, um, it's a story that needs to be told, the story that you tell. But I, when I looked and I looked at every, and there was a part of me that every time I saw a picture of an Afghan family on a plane leaving, and everybody's like, hey, we got him out. I was like, motherfucker. I was like, God, because it's a zero sum game. There's only so many mm-hmm. seats on the plane. And you're like, I could, or so many ways of getting into, you know, past Taliban security or whatever. And because, you know, the guys I was working with, I get it, were, you know, people that were targeted by the Taliban and couldn't even, you know, a lot of times even, they just couldn't even get to them without being targeted. There's a part, it was hard. And I was like, you know, and it, again, fucking awesome that, that people that are good and helped us got out. Has that come up? Am I the first person to say this, or have you heard this before? Because I don't know how much this is an issue in my mind, mm-hmm. <laughs> more of a psychological thing for me, or and how much this has affected our very small community of people that were working the phones, especially in those in those months. Yeah, yeah, the emotional toll is very real, right? I mean, I, I got my people out, and I still feel like I was affected dramatically. So, you know. For the people that didn't get their people out, I, I can't even imagine how much that hurts just to you know think about what's going on with them right now. And they're probably all hiding from the Taliban, trying not to have their families slaughtered, right? I mean, that's just the unfortunate reality of what's happening in Afghanistan right now. And I remember early on in the evacuation, you know, knowing that we didn't have Bagram as a resource anymore, that was very secure, had multiple working runways. Um, 
and, and hearing that the evacuation was going to run out of HKIA. And I've been to both airports and, you know, I knew that HKIA only had one running airport and I knew it was a civilian or one runway and I knew it was a civilian airport. So the security was probably almost zero. And I remember just doing the mental math to myself as to, you know, how long do we have and how many flights can possibly get in here and how many SIV applicants are there? And the math just wasn't adding up. Right. And when early on, when I was, I was working with my um, Michigan state Senator, Debbie Stabenow, who was amazing to work with and her staff was amazing, but they were also set up for failure because, you know, as they were trying to expedite our visas, you know, the guidance that they're getting from the state department was just have Abdul Muhammad shelter at home until we call them. Right. Well, again, as I'm doing this mental math, just knew that was never going to happen. They would never have gotten that call. They still today, over two years later, don't even have their SIV case numbers. So, you know, they'd still be waiting for that phone call. And, you know, that was really the point where like, we're like, you know, like we just need to make a run for the airport and see what happens because um, I don't trust that my government is going to do the right thing to help them. And I don't, I I know that nobody is coming for them. And I think that's, that's what I'm getting at is the the rub between um, when we're talking about people that are, if not uh, tier one high value targets that were higher value targets because they were, you know, intelligence figures or commando for, you know, Anasoc folks, um, or if they were, you know, cat one linguists, it's a big difference between those two. Mm-hmm. And the, and it seemed like, again, I'm biased and I don't know. So I'm asking, not telling. Is there, was there to your mind, some difference in getting them out because they weren't as targeted? think that if you were an Afghan ally that didn't have an American specifically trying to help you, it was going to be a a big uphill battle, no matter how qualified you were. So, you know, luckily Abdul Muhammad had, had me, um, helping them, but a lot of people that, you know, are just as deserving of them as them or, or more deserving as them, um, that didn't have that connection. Um, a lot of those people I'm sure are still stuck there. Just because, you know, you really needed that connection at the gate um, to be able to get them past the Marines because there's just it was just such a shit show. I mean, no fault to the Marines. They had, you know, a million people waving papers and phones in their face trying to get their attention. There was just, you know, really nothing that they could do to help the situation. And and this is the problem, as we said, when this is we are everybody was set up for failure. There was nobody that was going to come out of this a hero because everything had been set up in a way that was just going to. We were somebody was going to get screwed, mm-hmm. um, and there was no rhyme or reason to it. Um, speaking of no rhyme or reason, I want to back up to one thing that I did not know. Um, when you talked about the Par One Prison um, releases, so are you aware of the two um, Par One Prison uh, <laughs> releases that happened in 2019? Were you tracking those? Um, I, I remember hearing about it, but I, I don't think I know the details. It was part of, it was part of the Doha piece, uh, piece of courts or the negotiations. Oh, yes. Is, yes. So, so, um, so, uh, I was there for those and that was jarring. Um, and that's probably all I can say about that. I did not know though, in with that, when the Taliban finally took over par one and Abdul Rahman Alagri left. That he became the bomber. Um, what could have been done differently about that in your mind? 
Yeah, it feels like the handoff probably could have gone a lot better, right? Because we left Bagram in the middle of the night, flipped the lights off and didn't really tell the ANA what was going on. And I, I understand the OPSEC to some degree. Um, but if we're, you know, if, if they really are our partners, um, a, a proper handoff needed to happen. So, you know, there was a, a, a pretty substantial time period in between us leaving and the ANA really realizing that we had left um, where security had gotten breached by the Taliban and they had taken over Bagram very fast. So they take over Bagram. Um, all the Taliban and Al Qaeda and ISIS K members that we had in the Parwan detention facility were released. Uh, and like you said, one of them became the Abbey Gate bomber. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, and I didn't know that was who it was. And um, that was, I don't know how much digging you had to do to find that out. Maybe it's common knowledge and I just missed it, but uh, that was a interesting little tidbit. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very important part of the, the story for sure. <laughs> it really is. And yet another thing that was not, to my mind, highlighted widely, mm. right? Maybe for obvious reasons. Yes. I mean, the, it does not make the government look good. So they're uh, going to do anything they can to try to hide that fact. The other big piece that I think got underreported was the fact, and I wasn't tracking how significant this was, how important the, the vaccination refusals were in the mm -hmm. Marine Corps to deplete the force from 2-1 that ended up being there and manning the gates at HKIA. Just talk a little bit about that, because that was a big piece that I think COVID kind of gets backburnered in this, but that was a very big piece of the security posture we ended up having there. Sure. And I don't know what the exact numbers were that they wanted to take versus what they actually got to take. Um, but yes, uh, when I when I talked to the Marines at Abbey Gate, um, you know, they talked about how a lot of the troops, a lot of the Marines that didn't get chose not to get the vaccination for whatever reason, were not allowed to go on deployment. And they knew that they would not be able to go on that deployment if they did not get that vaccination. So that was a big point of contempt because, you know, these Marines you know, got put in a horrible situation um, and they kind of felt betrayed by some of the Marines that chose not to be there over some moral stance about a vaccination. So, you know, I can't really speak to how it really affected numbers because I don't know how many they were trying to take versus, versus actually took. Um, but I know that did weigh um, on the minds of the Marines that were on the ground. Do you think it weighed just in terms of I hate to use this word, but like the quality of Marines, like, did they have to go with my second round draft pick? Was like <clears throat> the guys normally with our squad wasn't there. Was there any of that that you heard of? Maybe. I mean, I didn't hear that specifically. It was just more of a contempt of, you know, we went, you know, we lost brothers and you weren't here. Yeah. Gotcha. But that was the message I got. And I mean, there's more failures than that. I mean, I, I briefly talked at the beginning of the book about, um, Sergeant Vargas Andrews, um, who was a, a, a sniper and two, one weapons company who was up in the sniper tower. And, you know, we were, we were all getting, um, intelligence that a, a suicide vest was coming to Abigate, even in our digital Dunkirk chats. I mean, that morning, three hours before the bomb actually happened, you know, we got a break, break, break suicide vest had, had, uh, head into Abigate time now. So everyone knew it was coming. They knew it was coming. Um, Sergeant Vargas talks very openly about how there was intelligence pushed to him as to what the bomber was wearing. It was a young man wearing a dark outfit. He was going to be escorted by an older gentleman wearing a, a white outfit, I believe. Um, they, Sergeant Vargas got two people um, matching that description in his scope. He called over um, psychological operations. He got multiple um, confirmations that uh, multiple entities thought that this was the target called over the battalion commander, asked for permission to engage. 
um, permission was denied. And um, I believe the words that the, the battalion commander said specifically is I don't have permission to um, engage the target and I don't know who does have authority to make that decision, which is just crazy to me. Um, you're the battalion commander of a Marine infantry unit that's, you know, standing 15 feet away from Taliban forces. And you don't know yet who has permit your authority to give your troops permission to fire on a threat. So, I mean, even to this day, Sergeant Vargas Andrews believes that that was the bomber um, and that he, he had an opportunity to eliminate that threat. And instead we lost 13 Americans and, you know, about 200 Afghans. So again, putting this in the bucket of predictable fuck-ups as a second-order effect of a chaotic, which is to say non-existent, neo-plan that was never conceived and never ratified, never you know bought into by all the stakeholders that needed to buy into it. Let's look at the takeaways that we can make from this then. First off, your book is nothing if not a tribute to the folks rush to do digital Dunkirk and man the boats, as it were, um, and try to get people out. You write at one point, um, you quote uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Keenan from the Modern War Institute, who wrote for the Modern War Institute at West Point, about one of the lessons from digital Dunkirk might be the formation of a civilian auxiliary for the Department of Defense um, so that it can tap into the veteran intellectual capital and it might also be good for veterans to have this as a community. Without looking at the X's and O's of what that would entail and all the ways that that, once the government and DOD would be involved in that, the ways that that could get convoluted and maybe not as effective. What do you think is the lasting impact, though, of seeing this informal infrastructure suddenly knock together and become a relatively effective, obviously without a lot of capabilities, but a relatively effective um, spur of the moment organization. What are the takeaways from that? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I've just never been so proud to share the uniform as, as everyone that stepped up on Digital Dunkirk. And, you know, actually, it wasn't just veterans, it was civilians, um, NSA, CIA, uh, senators, staff, congressmen, staff. I mean, there, there's a lot of everybody in that. And um, it really, I think it just really showed, um, the fortitude of, you know, Americans that are willing to step up. Um, you know, I think we saw, we just, we saw our own government failing and it just wasn't good enough for us. Um, and I think the message that it sends, you know, to our future allies is, is quite poor, right? It's, it, it says, come trust us, come serve with us, come bleed with us. We're going to make you all these empty promises and then we're going to leave you behind to get slaughtered. So I think that's, you know, one of the more infuriating things is, and we still don't have, um, you know, nobody has stepped up and apologized for any of this, right? And we're never going to get that because that's just the way that politics are in the United States these days is, you know, it's all just getting, you know, brushed under the rug and um, no one has to take accountability for it. Because the movement was, I mean, I felt like one of the common bonds everyone had was anger and disappointment, right? What I wonder is, do you think, is there any lasting residual effect that further separates the veteran and let's say veteran adjacent community from the civilian community? And I'll give you, an, I'll give you some context for where I'm coming from with this. Um, 
my um, wife at the time had was appalled that I was the only one tracking this, that everywhere else she went, there was no one else that knew or cared. And when I looked at the dedicated folks that were in there, you know, like you, not getting sleep, going nonstop, pushing very, very hard on this, sacrificing a lot of time, money, relationships, what have you. I wondered if there might be a residual effect that it's almost like a fifth column is being created where we're coming together, realizing we can have an infrastructure that'll never match the U.S. government, but can replicate an awful lot of things, or at least organizationally, structurally, certainly as far as dedication. And there's also a high degree of disillusionment with the U.S. government. I worry about the seeds that are planted from that. I hope it's a positive thing, and there's certainly been a ton of positive things that have come out of it in the short term. But I worry in the long term, the message that it sends not only to our allies, but to us and to the veteran community and to the military community and saying, when push comes to shove, you better, you're going to live or die by by your own efforts. But don't expect the government to be there necessarily backing you. Um, I say this, and my friend Scott Mann has talked me down on this. But, you know, I mean, he got visited by the FBI because they were worried that we were providing material support to terrorism because Taliban border guards had to be bribed to get rat lines across. Mm -hmm. This is while the administration was turning over the entire Afghan Air Force to the Taliban. That apparently is not material support to terrorism. It's that kind of shit that makes me go, who are you pissing off? And you're pissing off people that are proving a degree of capability. I mean, it's not like it's a first world power. We're stripped of all of our, a lot of the utility we have. Again, am I alone on this? Do you think there's any negative second order effects like that that could Mm -hmm. spin off of this? Or is that relatively unfounded? Sure. I mean, the moral injury is a term that's come up a lot recently in the past couple of years, um, which was very real um, to everyone that participated in this evacuation. And to, to hear the FBI visited Scott, man, is just so crazy to me because, you know, the, the, at one point during during the um, second family evacuation with Blumenthal, I mean, that all stemmed from the U.S. government reaching out to me asking for help, you know. This is uh, it was a soldier who was in my battalion in a different company um, and you know, my um, chain, chain of command had found out what I did with Abdul Muhammad and they reached out and asked if there's any way that I could help get them out, you know. So to have the U.S. Army calling me a, a E6 reservist living in Michigan to help evacuate a family out of Afghanistan is just so pathetic. So to, to and and not not on them. I mean, I'm so glad that they called me and I was very happy to help. But, um, you know, to have them reaching out to me for help, but also going to visit Scott Mann, um, you know, that doesn't make any sense and is just quite pathetic. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And and he was very, as is his way, very blase and forgiving about it. Like, oh, I get it. They're just doing due diligence. and Sure. But um, so I'm not speaking on his behalf. Like he was very, very gracious about it. But it did to me, I thought it was emblematic of a signal it was sending to the community. And I was like, you know, guys are looking around now and they're pissed off and they're motivated and they're, they're finding that, Hey, we can build an infrastructure very, very quickly that can try to move people. And obviously there's a left and right limits to that. But, um, I hope, I hope that hasn't planted bad seeds because mm-hmm. um, it's important that everybody, you know, does work under the right auspices and all that. But 
that also means the government has to do the right thing too and get its ducks in a row as well. Right. Um, and and w- one more piece of information that I think is important here is these people were, we were helping were not random people. For the most part in the Digital Dunkirk Network, these were our friends, you know, that we spent a lot of time with um, and, you know, went through tough times with. So um, when you find out that the government's not coming to help them, you're going to do anything, whatever it takes to help them get out. Right. So these weren't just random people. Um, so just very proud of our veteran community for stepping up and, and helping their friends. Let's talk about your work. As you mentioned at the time, you were a reservist. Are you still in now? Are you out? No, no, I'm done. Okay. Yep. Um, so at the time you had work and you were, t- <laughs> and you were, and you give a shout out to your employer and your boss. Mm-hmm. You also talk about your girlfriend occasionally and about, you know, the, the, how you kind of got ripped away to do digital Dunkirk from life Mm -hmm. in a way that I think, um, a lot of people don't fully acknowledge, uh, you know, in the civilian world, like uh, to people that weren't affected by this, it might be hard for them to wrap their heads around what that looks like. Talk a little bit about that. What was that experience like for you? How ADD were you? How much were you sitting at dinner tables, not part of the conversation because you're looking at your phone every two seconds, like that kind of thing? Like, yeah. just talk about what that what that vibe is like for folks. <clears throat> yeah, my phone was, I mean, literally hot for like 30 days straight, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, like you said, I mean, I, I couldn't focus on anything else. Um, so yeah, my girlfriend was, you know, she knew it was important, but was worried probably is the best word to describe it that I wasn't eating. I wasn't, you know, coming up for air at all. I was just, you know, buried in my phone and my computer. And um yeah, my employer was great. My boss um at the time, her name was Nikki and um she's just amazing human. And you know, she knew how important this was um to help these people. So she took on a big load of my work um so I could stay invested in, in trying to help them get out. Was that a easy conversation to have? I mean, or did she, did it require a lot of explanation or did she get it right away? No. I mean, she, she kind of understood the situation before I brought it to her. So, um, just explained, you know, what was happening. And she was like, Mike, you go help these people. And I got your back. So are you, are you still working there now? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, great company. And they take really good care of me. So what is it? Uh, what is it that you do? I'm in sales for uh, construction materials. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's really awesome um, that they were able to have that bandwidth that they could free you up for it. Um, what was it like emotionally for you working through this? You talk about it in the book. We've talked about it already on the show, but just specifically for you, what was the toll emotionally mm-hmm. on you? Uh, huge. I mean, especially going through it, you know, with some of the toughest days of, you know, I don't know if I've ever cried so much in a 30 day period. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say that, but, um, I think just this utter disappointment, I think is just like the biggest thing I felt of, um, cause it, we all knew what was going to happen. Right. We knew that so many people were going to get left behind. It wasn't hard to see that. Um, and just to see the, the, the top down failures of the whole thing, um, 
and just the the poor execution, just just a huge disappointment. And I just felt so bad for these people that I knew. You know, we I heard stories were coming out of the woodwork everywhere of you know people getting their heads cut off and um, you know our allies getting their wives raped in front of them. I mean, just the most horrendous shit. And then you know we see people falling off planes from thousands of feet in the air. And just I remember seeing that online and just instantly going back to nine eleven. Right, like the the one. one phrase I use in the book, I think is the war was ending just as it started of bodies falling from the sky and hitting pavement. And, um, you know, I talked to some of the soldiers that were first on the scene on the runway and the bodies were still, you know, smoldering and smoking when, when they got there and just, you know, the horrendous shit that these guys had to see and go through, um, that was avoidable is, um, is just tough to live with. When did you know you needed to write the book? I think I started writing a few months after um, everything settled down, after we got the Pymans out, because, you know, I raised a lot of money on on social media. So a lot of my friends kind of knew what was going on, but didn't know the whole story. So people were just constantly asking me to tell the story. And, you know, it's like it's a very long story to tell. Um, so I'm telling this story like 10 times a day, you know, and it's just taking over my whole life of people just calling me and I'm telling the story. So. I noticed, you know, after a bunch of times of telling the story, like the dates were getting fuzzy, um, the order of events was getting fuzzy. So originally I was just like, uh, I just need to get this down on paper um, so I don't forget for myself. Right. And then um, from there, you know, I just I pretty much just threw up on paper is what I like to say and just dump dump the story. I mean, it came out of me so fast and easy. And before I knew it, I had 25,000 or 30,000 words on the page. Um, and I was like, you know what? I, I think this is a story that really needs to be told. And I think there's a lot more to this story than has been told so far. Um, and that's when I, I found Robert Conlon, who's my, my writing partner. And he's the one that really helped me find my voice on the page because I don't have a writing background. Um, and he helped me out big time just with the order events and, you know, how to write things properly so that the audience can really comprehend it. Um, so very thankful for him. Um, but also I think a, a big part of writing the book is I get to tell some stories that haven't been told yet as to some heroes that served at Abbey Gate. Um, obviously we know the names of the 13 KIA, um, and you know, their names will live in infamy and, and there's also some, you know, some people that survived um, that deserve, you know, a lot of credit and have gotten that credit. But there's also some people, some names that haven't been told yet. Um, so I'm honored that I get to share those names and what they did at Abbey Gate in my book. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. I, yeah, I really, I read the whole thing, and I'm glad I did. But yeah, that brought back a lot of memories. Um, it's it, I think. Uh, for you, the personal connections you had, and the story about the Pymans is an, an incredible story. First, just because of who Bismala Pyman is, um, and the fact he was a U.S. soldier, and the fact that he had come from Afghanistan because he had been a linguist, right? And he'd worked for us, come here, become a citizen, and then join the army to Correct. give back, right? Almost a picture perfect example of what we want. Like you couldn't ask for a better friend turned literal fellow citizen. You know, it's, it's literally the American dream for a soldier. Yeah. And perfect, perfect example of what it means to be an American in my book. A hundred percent. And, and the fact that, you know, now it's his family that can't get out. 
and what you did to make sure that the government didn't drop the ball on them, the number of times that they went to the airport, were turned away, sitting out in the gas station, can't get in, right? All those, all those little moments. I won't spoil it for everybody that's, you know, listening. I mean, spoiler alert, they got out, but you know, um, outside of that, all the little details that are worth um reading the book and and hearing specifically about the ebb and flow, the emotional crest and the emotional valleys that you would go into with each theoretical success and then oh shit, that's even a worse failure. Was there a toll that that took afterwards? What was the what was the residual effect of all this? If none of this had happened during that two month period, what what would have what would have stayed the same? What would have, what changed because you went through all this for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my life has changed pretty dramatically. Um, and I think I probably would have been a lot happier if none of this ever happened. (laughs) Um, but you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I did and I'm proud of what everybody did. And, um, you know, the work still continues, like I said earlier. And, um, as I mentioned, I'm still getting messages every day and, you know, we're lucky enough to welcome another family in, um, to the country last week that we had been work, we had been hiding them in safe houses for two years. Um, it was actually another U S, um, military member's family. So it was, um, he was an airman is an airman in the U S air force. It's his mother, sister, and grandmother. Um, they were stuck in Afghanistan, the same situation. He was an Afghan, came here, joined the military, and um so when they reached out to me i kind of thought it was going to be an easy evacuation i'm like this is the the mother of a u.s airman a sister a grandmother like the government will help them right they didn't obviously um the taliban came to their town in ghazni and um scooped up one of the neighbors and pretty much just demanded that they tell them who worked with the u.s government or they'd kill them on the spot and uh the neighbor neighbor gave up the information of the house Taliban went to their house, tried to assassinate them. I, uh, luckily, they weren't home. They shot the shit out of the house with AK-47 fire. I saw the pictures afterwards of the house just riddled in bullets. Um, so immediately they left, um, got in contact with me. We put them up in a safe house up in Mazar Sharif um, and you know, just started work, trying to work on flights and just kind of started getting the same answer from everybody as they don't qualify for a visa. And I'm just like... I understand that maybe they don't qualify for a visa, but there has to be exceptions here, right? Um, there's somebody that can make the decision to put them on a plane because I just did this with Senator Blumenthal, you know, a month ago. I know there's exceptions. And um, yeah, so it took it took two years of hiding them. Uh, the airmen had to go sneak over to um, Islamabad himself and and pay a smuggler to smuggle them across the border. Um, and then luckily, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan got on our team and um, got us over the goal line just a couple of weeks ago, and they just made it here. So, you know, we're fortunate, but, you know, if, it just puts it in perspective. If the, the direct family of a U.S. airman can't get here, imagine how hard it is for everyone else. I know we said before, I asked before, you know, what you hoped the book would do. There's a practical part of that as well as to why anyone should care about Afghanistan, because what the fuck can we do in Afghanistan at this point? Obviously, the Chinese are in Bagram. Taliban has the country. The odds of dropping the 82nd back in for any reason, should we need to, should we want to, is, is nil. What's the right answer to your mind now as far as U.S. involvement in Afghanistan? What should it be? 
man, it's such a tough, tough conversation. But, you know, to me, the Taliban is the enemy. And I don't think that we should recognize them as legitimate government when they are um, uh, not allowing females to go to school. They're not allowing females to have a job. You can't, if you're a female, you can't leave the house without your face covered or without a male escort. Um, they're still hunting down our allies. Um, there's, you know, stories coming out every day of uh, our allies still being executed and um, their daughters are being kidnapped and, you know, given to Taliban warlords. And um, so to imagine the UN or the US government recognizing them as a legitimate government is crazy to me, even though I know they're considering it. But, you know, there, like I said, there is some resistance going on. And um, to my knowledge, the only resistance that's actually engaged in combat with the Taliban is the NRF. I could be wrong at this point, but that's the only group that I've actually heard of, of engaging in combat. And, you know, they're not asking for boots on the ground from us. They don't, they have enough men is what they said. And that's what Masood told me is we have enough people. We need resources. You know, they don't have any money. They don't have any ammo. Um, they just want us to fund their endeavor against the Taliban. And I, I guess I don't quite understand why we're not. Um, after spending three days with the NRF, you know, I, I really felt like they were the right option um, to fight Afghanistan, to fight the Taliban in Afghanistan. And, you know, they told me that they could take over Kabul in a day if they wanted to, but they just don't have the resources to hold on to it for more than a few days. So that's their issue them? now. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there was a little bit of propaganda going on there because I was writing an article about that and they knew that I was. But uh, so do, do I think that they could actually take Kabul in a day? I don't know. Um, I would like to believe that's true, but I don't know. Um, but I, I do believe them when they say they're not asking for people. They don't they don't want our soldiers there. They just they want to be supported financially. Um, so I guess I just don't see a downside to uh, trying to back, you know, the enemy of our enemy. We've done it many times before. Yeah. Yeah, it's. um, Yeah, it's a dicey one. Did did you. um. How'd you like Masood? Talk about him and talk about the NRF, the NRF, like and what your, yeah, how those conversations went. What was your assessment of him? Of him, very professional, very intelligent, spoke great English, you know, spent a large, large amount of time with me and answered all my questions very openly. Just, yeah, professional is probably the best word to describe him. And then his, the people, God, I mean, they, they, when they think this guy is a God. You know, his supporters, that's just like the vibe I got. I mean, they, he walks in a room and the place goes bananas. And, um, uh, I would attended a, a rally with him and, you know, they, he gave the public a chance to speak and almost every single one of the people there, thousands of people there were trying to speak and, you know, they're all writing poetry for him and uh, just singing his praises. So, I mean, it, it feels like the people really love him and trust him as they did his father. So, uh, they def and th definitely, this was in him. Austria. This was in Austria that you saw? Yeah. Yes. Earlier this so summer. That was the critique I'd heard and I, I, uh, about him is that um, the Pancheries and um, a lot of the folks that would have been NRF got out early. And when there was a huge diaspora of them in Austria and in, in Paris, do you know if Masood is going back to Afghanistan or is he now permanently affixed in Europe? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I would imagine maybe he goes back occasionally and sneaks in, but I, I could be wrong there. I don't know. Yeah, that that to me has always been a red flag. Is it seems he there's a lot of time to. And again, I'm I'm casting aspersions. Um, I don't mean to, 
But I, I have questions about that because he definitely has a lot of connections and he's good at getting the word out. I know his, you know, the reason, you know, the reason we didn't support his father, right? Initially, and why Go the British it. did. He was the, he was the biggest uh, opium and heroin dealer oh, coming yeah. out of okay. Afghanistan. So we were very conflicted about that. And in retrospect, it's like, eh, okay, which way do you go with that? Definitely an incredibly charismatic and talented warlord. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, as with everything in Afghanistan, it's a complicated situation and we have done ourselves no fucking favors with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Afghanistan is never gonna, you know, doesn't seem like they're ever going to pick one person in unison, um, to lead the revolution because there's just, everybody hates each other. Right. Um, and so I don't think same thing with us. I don't, everyone has their opinion about who the right, uh, resistance is and, um, feels like everyone kind of, uh, latches onto somebody they've talked to or somebody they know. And I'm, I'm no, you know, different in that situation. I got to spend a, three days with NRF and Masood. So maybe I'm a little bit biased. Um, but, but, but why not? not? Goes, no, right? why? I mean, listen, it's more than most get. To, it's more insight than most people get. Sure. So no, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to sit here and, and shoot spitballs from the back of the classroom. Um, I have questions, but Hey, yeah, there's a lot to be said for the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Sure. Um, it's interesting because that is so much of Afghanistan, right? I mean, the Mujahideen, we fund them because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm -hmm. Soviets, and then, you know, it all comes full circle. But certainly we don't have a great track record of taking our eyes off Afghanistan and good things happening. Do you think, what do you think is the next time Afghanistan, this is a tough question, I, and I don't have a good answer for it, so that's why I'm throwing it to you. What do you think is the next time Afghanistan captures our public consciousness in the United States? Unfortunately, probably maybe the next time we put boots on the ground there. Why, um, when and why do you think that would occur? I hope it doesn't ever happen. I know for a fact that, you know, the part of the Doha agreement and us leaving was that the Taliban was not going to allow Al Qaeda to, you know, create a stronghold and training camps in Afghanistan. That's, that hasn't happened there. Al Qaeda is hundred percent in Afghanistan. They have training camps there. So, you know, if there is another attack on the United States by Al Qaeda from Afghanistan, you know, they're, they're clearly violating the Doha agreement. And, um, I think it's possible that we would put boots on the ground again. I hope it never happens because we would lose a lot more people, but I think it's certainly possible. While we're talking about geopolitics, do you think the invasion of Ukraine would have occurred had we stayed in Afghanistan? Hmm, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not an expert on really anything, but certainly not on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, what's interesting actually is a lot um maybe not a lot, but a, a sizable amount of um, ANA soldiers ended up uh, fighting for Russia and Ukraine. I guess I don't really blame them, to be honest, because, you know, their their choices were, you know, stay in Afghanistan and be hunted the rest of your life by the Taliban or, you know, come here and we're going to pay you to go fight the Ukrainians and your family's going to be safe. You know, which one would you choose if you had a family? Um, but it is crazy that that happened. Well, it's, so the scuttlebutt that I heard is that Iran has a program to bring Anasak folks over to help Russia because of this, you know, continually flirty friendship that Iran and Russia have. And certainly with that kind of, I mean, this is what one of our many fears was in trying to get these folks out, was that there's a lot of knowledge capital that's sitting over there that we've paid for and trained 
And now it's going to be up for the highest bidder because they mm-hmm. don't live and they can't have their families get massacred. For sure. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. You've heard the same thing. I had a note that I totally skipped over and I want to go back to it because it's a granular issue on the Abbey Gate attack. Can you just talk briefly about the uh, second gunman on the grassy knoll thing that happened at Abbey Gate where we heard initial reports that it was a complex attack? That's what John Kirby initially had said. And then that was walked back. And now it's just an S-Fest. And then you have boots on ground testimony that you heard directly saying the fuck there was. There was gunshots. There were gunshot wounds that were being treated and all the rest of that. Mm -hmm. What's your takeaway on that? What's your takeaway as to why there's misinformation, if not outright disinformation on that? And yeah, just discuss the nuances of that little piece because i feel like that's interesting if not pivotal yeah so the dod report claims like you said that it was not a complex attack and that there was no small arms fire after the explosion which like you said they had walked back because initially there was reports that there was small arms fire every single marine that i've talked to says they were a hundred percent getting shot at after the explosion why the DOD report would you know, say that there wasn't, I don't really know what their intentions would be to hide that fact, um, other than it just being such a shit show and them not wanting to take accountability. Um, I don't know what other reasons there would be for them to hide that fact, but you know, I, I, I tend to believe the boots on the ground. You know, I tend to believe that E3, that E4, that E5, that was you know, taking cover while rounds are going over his head. I tend to believe him more than a, a DOD report by somebody sitting in an office. And you point out, I think, in an adjacent paragraph that the Marines also noted what the Taliban's reaction was post-blast, right? What was that mm-hmm. like? Yeah, so <clears throat> a lot of them said that the, you know, the Taliban, for them, pretty much the whole evacu- evacuation was mocking them and you know, making obscene gestures and laughing at them. And um, that continued after the explosion. So you know, as uh, the chaos ensued right after the explosion and they're trying to triage um, their comrades and the Afghans um, that got injured during the explosion, uh, the Taliban standing up on shipping containers and laughing and joking at them um, as they're carrying their dead bodies off the battlefield. So um, that stuck with them. And, you know, kudos to them for not, you know, reacting. You know, they those Marines were extremely professional uh, in their conduct. And I'm, cause I'm sure they were just so rattled and so, uh, disgusted, uh, by the Taliban activity. And I'm sure they wanted to just kill everybody and get the revenge, but, but they didn't, they remained professional and, you know, went to work on their friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to read you back to you for a second, if I can, cause you, you captured some granular moments from some of these Marines that I think are noteworthy. Um, I saw a kid of about five or six get trampled out in the crowd. I tried, but couldn't get to him. There were just too many people. Grown men were stepping on him in an effort to get closer to us to show their documents. I saw the life leave his eyes. Sergeant Williamson recounts in a voice that leaves little doubt that the horror of that sight remains with him. Um, I don't know if we would have known that if not for you talking to them. I should probably have a question here, and I kind of don't, but that one, that one stung. Mm-hmm. That one yeah. felt real. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the, like I said, the things that these guys had to see. I mean, they were watching, you know, babies were getting thrown over the 
12 foot T walls, um, just out of desperation, you know, imagine being so desperate that you're a mother and you, you throw your baby 12 feet in the air, just hoping that someone on the other side catches them and takes them to safety. You know, that's, that's how horrendous these situations were. And some of the babies got caught in the Constantine and Constantine wire and blood out. But there's just countless stories of people getting trampled and our Marines watching people get trampled and babies get trampled. And there's just nothing that they could do. I mean, if you've seen videos or pictures from Abbeygate, you know what a shit show and just the mass humanity of people. If someone got stuck under that, there was just no chance of them coming up. So one story I, I tell quite often is um, Sergeant Zelensky, um, who's the, the Marine sergeant that actually pulled Abdul and Muhammad out of, out of the gate. He was a new father. His baby was born while he was on deployment. And um, that was his first child. And there was a moment during the evacuation at Abbey Gate where a, a mother came up um, and handed him a dead baby and then just turned around and walked away. And he thought it was just so odd. But, you know, you think about it, what do you want her to do? I mean, she's just, she's trying to, you know, she probably has more kids 10 feet away that she's trying to save at this point. And she can't, she can no longer hold on to this dead baby. So that was a tough moment for Zelensky because, you know, he's looking down at this dead baby and holding this dead baby before he even holds his own child. And, um, you know, he's, he's standing there at Abbey gate in the stench of death and despair and just watching people fight for their lives. I mean, it's just horrendous. How are you doing with all this? That's a lot of weight to carry. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Um, uh, I think writing this book was major therapy for me, being able to yeah. get the story off my chest. But, and it's crazy because like I wasn't even there, you know, that's, and it's, it's hard for me to even remember that sometimes that I wasn't there because I felt, felt like I was there. But I just feel like so much um, for the guys and girls that were there and had to go through this because I can't imagine, you know, the trauma that they, that they would have from this. And, you know, in, in our interviews, um, I would often ask the guys if they're, you know, getting help and, some of them are and some of them aren't, but it seems like they all should be. Um, they all have nightmares about it. Um, Zelensky still sees this one girl with green eyes in his sleep every night. And um, yeah, like I said, I mean, they just went through some horrendous shit. And um, I hope that they come out okay from it. What do you see for yourself going forward? I mean, on a one level, I mean, are there more books? Are there more stories to tell? Do you see yourself staying involved in Afghan relations for a long time? I mean, what has this done to the trajectory of your life and your outlook? Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what what's next for me. I mean, my book's just about to come out now. Um, so I'm kind of focused on that. But, um, you know, we also have the podcast. Me and uh, Beth Bailey, uh, who's an amazing woman, hosts the Afghanistan Project podcast. Um, and we, you know, we talked to Afghans that are still in Afghanistan. We talked to Afghans that made it out. We talked to um, troops that were on the ground at HKIA. Um, we talked to digital Dunkirk people. Um, it's kind of shifted more so now into um, talking to a lot of the veterans that were there and, you know, talking about moral injury uh, and keeping that on people's radar. So I think we'll continue to do that. Um, other than that, I, I'm not quite sure yet. Um, I think you added something though. That is, I, I think it's going to make an indelible imprint on the story of Afghanistan. It's it is stunning, unfortunate how little traction Afghanistan has two years after, which we kind of all knew it wasn't mm -hmm. it was going to lose traction. 
but the fact now that your book is coming out and that it is one of the and it's so comprehensive again it has a lot of autobiographical stuff from you but the interviews you did and the way you fleshed out the picture of h kaya and told the story of the boots on the ground um i hope you're as proud of it as i think you should be i think it's it's truly going to make a mark um in the community and hopefully beyond that but i think you've added something to the canned literature on afghanistan that that needs to be there and there was a gap in that coverage Mm-hmm. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I am proud of it. I'm proud of the story that we were able to tell. Um, and, you know, like I said before, it, it's up to us to tell this now because nobody else is covering it. So um, if we stop talking about it, then it's just going to vanish. So, um, you know, I'm proud to be able to add some documents to to history about, you know, the heroes that served at Abbey Gate and uh, what a shit show our government created. And to be fair, it's also a really smooth read. I mean, I read that pretty quickly. It, it's a, it goes down really well. So Thank it's you. a tough subject matter, but it's really well done. And um, it's 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 more than just a fucking white paper. I mean, it's it's a proper book, and it's really well done. And um, yeah, you should be really, really proud of it, I think. Yeah, thank you. I am. appreciate that. Come back. Come back and talk with us again, all right? I'd love to yes, hear sir. what else is going on and, um, and really uh, we'll obviously push it out as much as we can through our channels and through Havoc. But um, dude, congratulations. Great job. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. That was Michael Cook's profile in Havoc. You know, the whole time that Michael and I were on the Zoom call together, I kept looking at him going, man, do I recognize him at all from when I was at Camp Moorhead where he was for the second part of his deployment? Um, And I don't know. I mean, everybody in the military looks familiar in some way. (laughs) We all kind of look alike in some way, right? Uh, anyway, so I was looking at him going, man, I wonder if I, I must know him from somewhere. Anyway, uh, what a great dude and what a great service he has done, both in writing the book and in all of his efforts at Digital Dunkirk. Um, to me, candidly, I mean, he seems angry, um, and I can relate to that. Um, and I don't mean angry like he's walking around frothing at the mouth. I just mean the, the disillusionment. Um, it just when, when I, The second I saw him, I was like, oh, my God, I know that face. And I, obviously, I don't mean like I remembered him from Moorhead right off the bat, but I knew that face, like I knew that expression, I knew that that attitude, that you know, um, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm projecting <laughs> when I say this, but I feel like uh, I, I was just like, yeah, the the you know, having just read his book and remembering all those sleepless nights, working the phones, and everything else. Um, and not like he had just been doing it when he and I talked, but um, but I think approaching this subject matter, it brings out a certain quality in those of us that, that had done it. Anyway, um, it was a great time talking with him. Um, if you want to get the book, so we're timing this so that as you're listening to the episode, the book is available either on pre-sale or it's out there. Um, but we timed this episode to not release before the uh, the book is out. So go get it. It is available at Amazon. Life and Death at Abbey Gate. Life and Death at Abbey Gate. And if you want to cheat, get you know, I don't know, an easy way to to uh, buy it. You can go to Mike's um, Instagram page, and it's right there in his. Uh, in his link in his bio, 
but his life and death at Abbey Gate, the fall of Afghanistan, and the operation to save our allies. So check it out. It's available everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, what have you. Um, And, uh, you know, as as you guys heard me say to Michael, you should be very, very proud of this. It's an incredibly worthwhile addition to our literature. Now, we started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I now need to thank this episode's other sponsor, my own nonprofit, Veterans Repertory Theater, which, as I said up front, is the reason why why we missed a week or two um, in getting these episodes out, uh, just because we'd been very, very busy there. Busy with what? Well, I can't tell you yet. Um, There will be news forthcoming in the winter months, but a lot of big stuff that we're working on for 2024. Veterans Repertory Theater is a platform. For military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD employees, and contractors to create compelling, live, professional theater and events. We are not there to help veterans. We are veterans that are here to help audiences through the live performance arts. So um, you can check out what we're doing at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. While you're at vetrep.org, you can scroll partway down the homepage. You'll see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog. If you do that, you will get every day in your email inbox a little piece of veteran writing, poetry, fiction, or creative nonfiction, and then followed with a bunch of shameless plugs, usually. So that's what will be happening. Um, yeah, do that. Become one of the almost 1,000 people that have now subscribed to our literary blog. It is a great way to start your day and also to develop a further appreciation and knowledge of veteran artists in the writing space. Um, Yeah, we love doing it. So check it out. Uh, Again, check everything that we're doing at VetRep out at VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. Okay. My thanks to Mike Neal for producing this episode, as always. My thanks to Michael Cook for coming on the show. And on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. 